Welcome back to Hooray Podcast. Today we interviewed Christine Tsu, the current head of product for AI recommendations at eBay. In this episode, Sue shares about navigating the agricultural industry when launching her startup and the challenges and rewards of taking on crucial leadership roles in AI at both Twitter and eBay. Stick around to learn more. Hooray Podcast is dedicated to promoting the stories of innovative women across all different career fields. We hope to learn from their stories and provide young women like ourselves with strong role models. We're your co-hosts, Caroline and Sophie. Christine Sue is a global product executive and head of eBay's Product for AI Recommendations. She previously led the global content moderation strategy team at Twitter and founded PastureMap, a software startup for the agricultural industry. Her work has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Her Way. Today I'm super excited to talk with Ms. Christine Sue. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on here today. No problem. Happy to be here. So to begin, could you explain a little bit about your background, maybe where you grew up around here, your family, education? For sure. I'm actually very excited to be here on a local podcast because yeah. um, we were just talking before the show. I went to high school at Livebrook in Cupertino, mm-hmm. um, technically in San Jose, like North San Jose, yeah, you know, like um, Miller and De Anza. Um, Stephen Creek, and uh, I actually grew up in Hong Kong and Taiwan. My family is Taiwanese, uh, and then I grew up in Hong Kong for about 14 years uh, in my childhood, and then we moved back and forth to California actually a few times. So um, I was born in the States, we moved back when I, to Asia when I was five, uh, and then I came back when I was 13. So kind of a t- like atypical outside the Bay Area, but like pretty typical, like third culture kid um, mm, yeah. in, in the Bay Area. So um Went to high school in Limbrook, then I went to Stanford for undergrad, uh, and then I actually moved back to Hong Kong for the early part of my career, uh, where I joined McKinsey and Company as a management consultant, my first job out of college, um, and then went to finance, uh, worked for a private equity firm, which is uh, basically investing in companies and trying to make the operations better and help them make more money. I really enjoyed that. I uh, really enjoyed helping businesses on the ground. So then I, uh, but I was pretty burnt out after several years of basically being a finance bro in Hong Kong. And so I moved, back. I was ready to come back to California. I wanted to come back to the Bay. So I came back to Stanford for business school, which is actually uh, where I met your dad, uh, Eric. Um, and then I started a, a company uh, out of uh, Stanford GSB Pasture Map, which was uh, a climate software company that was trying to help farmers and ranchers be more sustainable while also making more money. Um, I, I'm starting to feel my age now. Like my career takes yeah. a long time to go over. <laughs> so, so then seven years later, we sold uh, Pasture Map at the beginning of COVID on in, like April 1st of 2020. Uh, and then, um, then I joined Twitter for a few years, uh, leading up their safety and machine learning teams. And then most recently, I joined eBay, as you mentioned, as their head of AI recommendations just this January. Wow. How would you describe, like on a high level, your current role or your job currently as the head of product and AI recs at eBay? Sure, yeah. Uh, So it's been a a few years that I've been a product leader at a big tech company. Uh, I was basically leading product, you know, as the CEO of my startup as well for seven years. But I would say that uh, basically the teams that I've led have just gotten bigger and more complex. Uh, mm-hmm. Although people leadership is, is pretty much um, 
there's a lot of core skills that are the same. So I, I lead a, about 13 teams uh, and they're across seven different offices, which is really fun, actually. It's a, it's a larger scale version of what I was doing uh, at PastureMap, actually, when you're a startup and you can't afford Bay Area talent, you end up having a distributed team across, like we had teams in India, in Ukraine, uh, et cetera, um, but just on a larger scale. And of course, it's really fun right now to be in this moment in AI with the, with new generative AI technologies coming online. Yeah. That's awesome. Was there anything about the field or the company at eBay that specifically appealed to you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, after I left my, after I sold PastureBap, it was a climate startup, right? So I, the mission and using tech to help real people and real businesses connect and do better for themselves is always something that's been really important to me. It was a really big part of uh, what I enjoyed at PastureMap. Like anytime, building software is one thing, you can delight your customers with, with a great product, but really when the rubber meets the road is like, oh, this is gonna make them more money for their business. Then you know that you've actually impacted someone's livelihoods and their families as well so that, that's really meaningful to me um when i went after i sold pasture map uh, i was also looking for a meaningful role in tech so that's why i joined twitter as their head of uh conversational safety so it's helping people feel safer on the internet and have more control um but i definitely missed the climate work over the past three years i wouldn't trade the the last couple of years at Twitter for anything. I think we, we did a lot of really meaningful, important work, um, but I was missing like helping small businesses and also having a certain, like the, the planet positive story. So uh, the thing I love about eBay is it's been 27 years of being uh, um, one of the pioneers of re-commerce, right? So mm -hmm. eBay started the circular economy and the circular economy continues to grow with your generation as well. I just like, I love how many, people of your generation thrift and buy pre-loved yeah, i love it's that like yeah it's really important because the way that the previous generations consumed just like we know it doesn't work and it's setting the planet on fire and so i'm excited to join ebay at this point in time in our i guess societal and planetary history even though it's been around for a while yeah definitely and you talked about how you led many big teams in twitter at twitter and ebay and twitter is driven by like a community of users and the reviews at eBay also how the community often participates. So I was wondering, is there anything you learned from Twitter, like skills or patterns that you saw there that may have like transferred to eBay as someone who oversees all these like consumer interactions? Sure. Um, I think one of the patterns that I have seen in uh, leading larger and larger teams, especially at large companies, that's different from startups is that when you're a startup, there's only you and like a couple other founders at the beginning. So you're super close to your customers. Um, and if you don't get your customers to pay for, to value your product and you don't might find product market fit, you're like not laser focused on the problem, then you die essentially. <laughs> so, so it's really important. And it's kind of like an instinct for startup founders to be very laser focused on whether we're solving the customer problem. At least that's how you survive, right? Um, a lot of, a lot of, startups don't actually find product market fit. Um, I think one of my observations at larger tech companies is that um, what a founding team would do, like talk to the customer, solve their bugs, talk to the engineer to fix it, launch it in the same week, and then like go back to the customer and be like, hey, we fixed this problem. Can you pay now? Like that, that yeah. feedback loop is like pretty tight at a startup. But then when you get to a bigger company, all of those roles are split up into different 
organizational functions, which was actually a surprise for me. Like, for example, we'll have customer research departments who do like these very long customer research studies. Um, and then you have product managers, you have engineering teams, you have customer service teams, and you have marketing teams. They don't necessarily all talk to each other. And that is a challenge where like keeping people focused on the customer is, is actually something you have to actively do instead of something that's just like in a, your DNA as a company. Yeah, so that's something that I, at every team that I have led, even if you're a machine learning team that's just building ML models and you never, you're like deep in the stack, um, I try to encourage everybody to get much closer to the customer. Yeah, definitely. And Twitter, like you talked about, is a product that a lot of us and even teenagers use nowadays, and it's a platform that has such a big impact like globally. And so I was curious, what was it like just working at a company that impacts millions of lives on like a daily basis? Yeah, it was actually one of the reasons I, I joined. I never, first of all, I never thought I would be go, working at a social media company after spending almost a decade in climate activism. It just seemed like such a weird leap and, and people asked me about that. Um, and I probably wouldn't have joined if it wasn't for that particular role because they were looking for entrepreneurs who, um, so at the time Twitter had done a, invested a lot in machine learning to detect toxic content and illegal content and kind of suppress it so that users never, customers never see it. But um, there wasn't a lot of customer facing features so that people could feel safe and in control of their conversations. And as we know, women, people of color, minorities, the LGBTQIA community, like folks who are most marginalized often use social media to find their own people um, outside of IRL, especially if you live, if you live outside of a big city or, or you live in a country where it's not accessible to talk to your people um, freely. So that mission really appealed to me. Um, and then my sister is also a journalist who at the time was reporting on human rights um, in China. So her like journalist safety was something that was very personal to me. And I thought, okay, well, we could, I could talk, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of talk about how to make social media better, right? But mm -hmm. if you're able to get in a position where you have the privilege of actually doing something to make it better, even if it's for a subset of customers, a really important one to the global public conversation, I thought that that was um, meaningful and worth my time. You talked about being in an industry where you're really excited about the new advances in AI. And I was wondering, since the launch of AI, are there any applications of like ChatGPT or OpenAI to assist sort of content moderation? I think that the most fun part of the new advances in large language models is how accessible they are to normal people. So um, yeah. I would say like for those who have been working in internet safety and I, and I only worked in it for a few years at Twitter, but there are, my colleagues would have been working in online safety for like 25 years, 30 years. So people have seen everything from Gamergate to like the first forums back when I was back when I was a teenager, right? We were mm -hmm. all like teens on forums, you know, going through all kinds of content. Um, so the internet has been the internet for, for quite a while now. And it's uh, the, the patterns of content that show like what happens to an unmoderated space are quite well known, actually quite well understood by internet safety experts. Mm. Um, and then with the advent of machine learning models, um, some of the most exciting things that we did at Twitter were that, you know, that are, we publicly talked about, are trying to detect toxic content and so, like get rid of that so that we cause as little harm to people as possible because the the amount of spam the amount of toxicities can sometimes mm, be yeah. like 
very large, right? So you wanna you wanna actually remove that so that you you don't have the um, online public conversation, um, yeah. you know, just like spoiled uh, by by actually content that's not by real people. Um, what where when I left and I left I left Twitter in September of 2022. Um, the the digital um, services act which is like there's a lot of regulations coming out of the eu to make uh to try to make content ma uh, moderation um standards mandatory for for large mm -hmm. uh social media groups um and there's a lot of back and forth like without sharing anything that i can't share it's just like there's a lot of discussion about how do we actually implement this um uh there's a clause called, there's like a piece of it called algorithmic transparency right like helping people understand how um, how content is recommended to people and um, and then giving them choice and control. And I have to say there's a very early, it still is a very early part of, of content moderation all over the internet, gaming, public forums, Reddit, like um, uh, Tumblr is like coming back up, you know. Um, and what I'm most excited about with large language models is like even a year ago when I left Twitter, um, as a customer focused like product leader, um, there was always the question of like, well, are people going to understand ML models? Like, are, do we really mm -hmm. want to give them like all of this jargon and are they actually going to do anything with it? Or do they just want to, you know, not see bad stuff that they don't want and then get to move on with their day. They just don't want, you know, yeah. they don't want like all the stuff cluttering up their feed. Um, now, like my father-in-law and my like aunts are, can use ChatGPT. And and with the um, with the user friendliness of it, uh, I'm seeing like a quite a big difference from the average customer where they're comfortable challenging uh, mm -hmm. the model. They don't have to understand how it works, right? But you can understand the limitations of like, oh, this like if I ask it this thing, this thing, then it's hallucinating and it's giving me like obviously wrong answers. And if I ask it yeah. this thing, it's actually like pretty good at generating five paragraphs of uh, of a prompt, right? And yeah. so. The more that people play with this new technology and get comfortable with it, I think we've actually made a pretty significant um, advance in terms of comfort uh, with the average customer getting comfortable and understanding that AI is just a bunch of tools, like a model. There are different kinds of models and there are more advanced models than others, but getting more comfortable challenging it makes it less of a, of a black box where it's like really mysterious and people are not sure how to interact with the technology. Oh, wow. That's really insightful. And as someone who uses like Twitter and all these applications, it's really interesting to see this perspective of behind the scenes of this content moderation and bias. And backing up a little bit, you talked about an undergrad at Stanford University. I believe you received a BA in political science and history. And I was curious, like with this background in sort of humanities, how were you able to lead both the AI initiative at a tech company and also start um this amazing successful software company of uh, pasture map yeah i this is i'm so glad that you asked this question because um if i would, could impart anything to the folks in high school or preparing for college who are thinking about tech careers i would say like your career my career is much longer than i thought it was gonna be when i was 18 right like i thought that oh i was gonna do political science and I studied, I majored in international security studies. So I really cared about, um, back then actually, as now, the US-China um, geopolitical yeah. tensions. Like that was a really big part. I always, I've always been attracted to big problems and wanting to like play a part in making 
you know, helping be part of the solution. Um, and so for, for a while there, like when I applied to college, I thought I was going to join the state department and maybe do diplomacy. And then over, over the four years in college, I learned that there was something called business and uh, joined a business fraternity and uh, learned that there was consulting where I could uh, learn from Fortune 500 companies and get in, get involved. I just, I've always wanted to be at the table, you know? Um, and so could I have predicted that whatever it was, 15 years, I don't know how old I am now. I'm 37, so whatever, yeah. Um, 20 years later, I would end up being uh, an AI executive? Absolutely not, but the mm -hmm. but life is long and I'm still relatively young, actually, in my, you know, it might be hard to believe for your listeners, but I'm still <laughs> relatively <laughs> young in my overall career. I remember at, at Stanford GSB, there was a professor who told us like, as women, you should expect to live till 94, like given medical advances. So your career is not, you know, you don't have to like pick your career in your first two years after college and then just go assume you're going to do that forever. In fact, your career is going to be like 60 years long. And so in another 10 years, who knows, there will be completely new industries that have popped up that we don't, we can't even imagine now. Um, and so, yeah, like how I got into tech was really, I just, I just did it. You know, this is a mm -hmm. typical um, answer you'll get from an entrepreneur. Like I did not know how to code. You know, back in the day, you know, it, when I was 17, I think, like Zangas and GeoCities and the internet was just starting up. So I did teach myself how to like build websites, but that's it. Yeah, like, that's, I'm awesome. not, that's it. Like, I'm not, like I'm, you don't necessarily need all of that to get into product and to learn to talk to engineers. Um, engineers will tell you, the first thing engineers will tell you too, is like, you just learn, right? Like you just, you, engineers don't know everything. You just learn yeah. the next piece you need to know and you, you figure it out as you go. And so over, over the last 10 years, I've found myself gradually getting more and more technical and here I find myself, um, in one of the most exciting spaces in technology right now. Yeah. That's really impressive. And there's still so much to learn. Yeah. There's still so much to learn every day. And I would say, um, one thing for folks who are just starting out now, um, we're, we've seen. I mean, I was around when the internet first started. So like many of the folks who are my age and even older, some folks who are like even earlier are saying, hey, this is currently, we're at a real inflection point in technology right now with generative AI where things are opening up again. And it's it's possible because of what LLMs can do and what because of what some of these diffusion models for imaging and video and stuff can do that um, it's possible for you to tinker even if you don't have an engineering degree or you're you're mm -hmm. not like, you don't consider your STEM. I would say, don't pigeonhole yourself. Like I still have imposter syndrome sometimes when I'm in a room with like, you know, all these amazing um, uh, AI researchers. And I'm like, well, I don't have a PhD in computer science, but uh, but uh, like I do have a STEM degree, I have a science yeah. degree in my, like uh, from Stanford. I started a technology company and then I led products. So, you know, Sometimes you have to um, repeat those things to yourself because the imposter syndrome doesn't actually go away, even if you're older like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I love that. It's a really refreshing perspective because as a high schooler, there's this notion like when you apply and you um, pick a major in college, that's what you have to do. But as some, I, like, I like how you said about even though you had this humanities background, you started this really successful software company because... Like last year, I took this CS course at my high school, and I was so bad, like I couldn't even debug for the life of me. And I, and I, my dad and my brother, 
that's kind of their thing. My brother loves CS and I was like, I'll never be able to do this, like, like get a job in AI or anything in the future, but that's a really refreshing perspective. There's builders and there's also people leaders, right? There's there's all, multiple ways and there's, I want everyone who is a woman or is just like generally feels like they're a quote-unquote non-technical person to really hear this mm -hmm. there are lots of quote-unquote non-technical roles in tech where you gradually become more and more technical right you can do you can do research you can do data analysis you can uh do marketing uh you can start in customer success you can do product products people are like half humanities and half um you know stem majors and it's and there's lots of different kinds of product and then there's business there's product marketing there's just a ton of functions that i talked about especially at big companies where a humanities background is actually needed because like, like you can't just yeah. try to figure out how to like build the workflow and do the job make sure that the code works but once you make the code you also need someone to think about like does this thing actually solve the problem for the customer how are we going to market it to the customer yeah. who's going to interview the customer um is this thing going to make money like let's like figure out whether the costs are less than the revenue. Um, there's all of those different parts to running a startup. And um, I, I mean, you know, like I, I'm an entrepreneur forever. And so I also am really mm -hmm. grateful to the startup community for cre creating opportunities. Like you can be anyone in a startup company uh, and, you know, you mm -hmm. have to figure out the right sets of talent, but, you know, often just one technical co-founder is also not, and, and engineers know this, like our technical co-founders often are very aware of their limitations and who they need to actually build a successful business. So yeah, don't let anyone tell you any different. Yeah, definitely. I love that advice. And as someone who founded the company Passion Map, you have a very unique and fascinating background in climate, like you talked about in agricultural technology. So I was curious, how would you describe like your experience working with ranchers as an educated Asian American female from like the Silicon Valley? You know, we can put ourselves in these boxes, but uh, the other, I mean, this goes with the theme. Don't let anyone put you in a box. Yeah. Right? It, it definitely felt like I, um, you know, over the course of seven years at Pasture Map had most of the people were curious and, and interested. Like, why, why was I interested? And I grew up in Hong Kong. I'm a city girl. And then I went mm -hmm. to Stanford and I was like from Silicon Valley. And like, what am I doing in Nebraska on yeah. a ranch? <laughs> right. And I was like, well, I'm really interested in what you're doing. And I was interested enough that I went and got a degree in it and then started a company around it and then built all the software. So I think like, um, I fundamentally just believe that people are kind and, and curious and, um, and I don't limit myself from the, from being curious about things that I'm curious about, you know, just because I don't look like, or sound like, or, at, you know, if I'm the, I think it, it has to do with moving around so much as a kid, I moved 14 yeah. times between Asia and, and California growing up. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm pretty used to being the odd kid out and uh, making friends wherever I go. Um, and so I think like, if you're interested in, I don't know, what's at the bottom of the ocean, or if you're interested in space, or you're interested in like, studying fungi for 20 years i guess these are just things i'm interested in <laughs> don't let any don't let anyone say well you don't have like you didn't grow up in this or like you don't look like everybody else in the space um and definitely like a couple a couple of vcs um would question um why i was doing it but I, honestly i found that on in farming like at once i 
out there to our customers like all they care about is like well you're interested in what i'm doing i'm like that's awesome people people love what they do often and they love talking about themselves and why why they do what they do um and so if you show curiosity then very few doors are closed yeah wow i love that advice i wish i had that mindset you do because you're doing this (laughs) podcast But the food and agriculture industry feeds the world. But I assume it's also very difficult for like ado- adopting technology and maybe like the software you created. And so I was curious, what inspired you to create a software company in this challenging or unique industry? Yeah, honestly, I just wanted to help. Like I wanted to be part of of food and ag. I love food. It's like it's very central to my culture, my family. But I grew up in Hong Kong and in, in cities. So I didn't know much about where my food came from. Um, and after my early career in management consulting and in finance, like we were building spreadsheets and models, you know, data models and, and dashboards and stuff to help businesses. I, I knew how to make factories run better. Mm-hmm. But then uh, when I, in between, in between leaving my finance job and uh, coming back to Stanford for grad school, I interned on a, a Japanese dairy in Hokkaido uh, mm-hmm. on a dairy farm. I was literally like a dairy hand like mucking out stalls and stuff and I was like oh this is like and it was a um our farmer was this 60 year old lovely man uh who had lost his wife to cancer and he could basically kept his family farm running with volunteers from around the world with woofing which is like a worldwide organic opportunities on organic farms he was a lovely person and I'm like well this is a very difficult job like farming was so viscerally difficult and the 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 calling was so honorable, you know, to feed people. He wanted to like, he held classes for people. He made, his dream was to open an ice cream and yogurt shop for Mm -hmm. children, school children. And I was like, wow. I mean, it's very romanticized, right? Farming is actually really, really hard work. Um, But there are a lot of good people who, who do farming as a calling because it really is not very profitable. And so where, where Pasture Map came from was like, well, I think organic farming is, better for the environment and I went and got a degree at Stanford to confirm that <laughs> I needed to study the soil science for myself and then I was like well I think operationally we could make them um, ha- we could make them more money if we helped some of these operational decisions that people just never get to because they're they're working so hard every day at the labor part of it um and so that that was the beginning it wasn't like I wanted I'd start headed I didn't start out planning to start a software company it just ended up being you know, in at Stanford and in Silicon Valley, everyone defaults to software, but mm. really the core of it was I wanted to help farmers make more money uh, doing what they love and help the environment. And I just like wanted to see if I could build a business that hit that triple bottom line. Um, and it's quite, it ended up being quite difficult to do that, right? But um, eBay is one of those companies where like the business model and the climate impact and the people impact and and their business all like line up and i think it's those kinds of triple bottom line businesses are super beautiful when you when mm. you can get it right yeah definitely and this podcast is dedicated to highlighting the stories of female trailblazers like yourself many who have overcome various challenges in their various workforce because of their gender um, you talked about always wanting to be at the table which i really admire and as an asian american woman did that confidence sort of develop gradually or did you always have it before? No, confidence did not come in straight off the bat. <laughs> I mean, I did. I had a lot of reps at it, I would say, because I moved 14 times as a kid. So I have a lot of practice going into, for example, a new 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 school year 
where you don't know anybody and then having to like figure out who to eat lunch with yeah um, so so I have a lot of practice at um not letting my fear uh control the choices that I make so that I end up you know building the life that I want but I would say it's never easy and I have a lot of empathy for you know it's it's normal to feel scared it's normal to feel anxious it's normal to be like what if this doesn't work out what if this all is just what if I'm not good enough etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's what you do after that that matters um, yeah. and it's also really important to surround as I've gotten older um uh learn one of the best pieces of advice I ever got uh from a, a coach was surround yourself with at least half of the time surround yourself with people who love you and fully see you and fully hold you so that when you go out in the world with all of these you know labels or just your own you know personality mm-hmm. your own like delicate heart like for me protecting my, I'm a big feeler right my heart is learning to protect my heart has, has been like a big journey because I'm really just like we'll pour it all over everything um learning to pour into yourself with people who love you and, and see you so that in the other half of the time when you have to show up to rooms that maybe aren't so welcoming or rooms that just like you know bring up those feelings that you're pouring from a strong base of knowledge of who you are and and people who affirm you and support you yeah I love that and I want to be mindful of your time and we always ask this last question you've already given so much valuable advice on this podcast but if you could go back if there's anything else if you could go back and give your high school self a piece of advice what would you say uh <laughs> I, I tell 20 year olds all this time. Uh-huh. your um your energy is is a is a, such a blessing right now what I didn't realize once I turned 25 and 30 and 35 is that your energy takes a step function like you just get tired more easily so invest in not expending all of your energy right now like for example um posture i don't to sound like such an auntie now but i'm like posture really matters like don't lean over your laptop for like you know, 18 hours a day <laughs> that's and, me like you know do your thought like be scrolling like you'll end up having like carpal tunnel is real so um i know you know similarly aged aunties told me the same thing when i was young and i ignored them and i definitely like beat up my body like working very hard grinding really hard for the last 20 years and definitely your, your pt sessions will end up paying for like you you know neck pain <laughs> back pain that's real like if you don't want to be going to the chiropractor and pt for back pain when you're 35 and you still have like 50 more years to go <laughs> um then you know get into your body like take good care of your body i would say is my top advice uh if you don't take good care of your body like the rest is you don't have anything um and the other thing i would say is um yeah just like the doubt like wait you have many many shots like i thought i only i thought when i was 16 i had one shot at college and then after college i thought i had one shot at a career then i realized in business school that you have many many shots and then like now i'm 35 i'm like oh I can try a different job every five years for the rest of my life. Uh, so you have so many shots. You have so many bites of the apple. Like, don't, don't worry about hanging it all on one decision. Like you always get to change your mind. Yeah. Well, I love that piece of advice. And I think it's a great way to wrap up our, our conversation. So I really enjoyed yeah. chatting with you, uh, Miss Christine Sue, and I admire your work so much. So thank you for taking the time to come on here today. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. And... Yeah, yeah. Try a lot yeah. of different things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Her Way. Be sure to look out for the next episode.
For more information, check out HerWayPodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our mailing list to get updates. See you next time.